You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. You have never seen anything like it. A bona fide guaranteed attraction. The only act of its kind in the world today. See that beautiful girl. She's in here now. And alive. You've never seen anything like it. Let's go now. Pay it a visit. See the sleeping beauty. Get your tickets. One dollar pays the way. The very thought of you. The Sleeping Beauty, ladies and gentlemen. She is no exaggeration. And I forget to do... The enigma that has baffled medical scientists. The little ordinary thing... Does she indeed have feelings? That everyone ought to do... Is our beauty dreaming? I'm living in... Or is she simply... A kind of daydream... Asleep. I'm happy as a king. I feel it's all a dream, you know, like like I'm not completely awake yet. I wonder if this isn't a dream, too. I don't remember when I fell asleep, but it couldn't have been too long after when I had a dream. A man, someone I'd never seen before, was kissing me. I don't know how he got there or anything, but he, he was kissing me and I couldn't seem to do anything to stop him. Then he would stop and go away. And there'd be nothing. For a long time, there'd be nothing. All I know is we call her the Sleeping Beauty because A, she is asleep, and B, she is beautiful. If you think you are a Prince Charming who can make it where medical science failed by awakening our sleeping beauty with a kiss, let him put his dollar up in the air and step right up. Come on, you he-men. You good sports? I was helpless to stop it. At first I tried, but, but soon I didn't want it to stop. Because then there'd be the nothing again. I dreamed that someone was kissing me. And this feeling would come over me. In this dream, lots of strange men would kiss me and touch me. And I couldn't stop them. And it would stop in nothing. Don't you see that the dreams were all for you? He who awakens sleeping beauty is in danger of awakening himself. Just the thought of you. The very thought of you. My love. I bought a sleeping beauty. She's in the other room. I'm waiting for her to wake up. I thought you ought to know. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me is Ms. Heather Drain. Hello, hello. Also joining us this week is Mr. Aaron Peterson. Hey, Mike. How are you? Great. Great to have you, sir. Thanks for having me. I'm a big fan of the show. And hi, Ms. Heather Drain. Well, hello, Mr. Aaron. <laughs> it's an acronym. I think that's great. This week we are talking about Some Call It Loving, also known as Sleeping Beauty and Dreamcastle. The film from 1973 was written and directed by James B. Harris. The film stars Zalman King as a jazz musician who lives with two beautiful women. They indulge in all manner of role-playing scenarios. One night at a carnival... King, as Robert Troy, happens upon a sideshow act of a sleeping beauty, a woman who has been asleep for eight years. The Barker, played by Logan Ramsey, a fantastic character actor, charges a buck a kiss while men try to wake her. 
That's just the beginning of this fantastic tale, and I should warn folks that we're going to be getting to spoilers on this episode, so if you don't want the twists and turns of Some Call It Loving to be ruined, go ahead, turn off the podcast, and pick up the beautifully restored Blu-ray from Etiquette Pictures, a subsidiary of Vinegar Syndrome. Do so. Come on back. We will still be here. Now, Heather, when was the first time that you saw Some Call It Loving, and what did you think? The first time I saw it was last year, um, actually, thanks to the uh, release you just referenced from Etiquette Pictures. Um, I I'd, had heard about the film for years, and it was always one of those sort of obscure cult titles that would come up occasionally, like in articles or old film books that you could never find. And so when they released it on Blu-ray uh, and DVD, it was like, oh, goodness, this is – yeah, I was very excited to see it, and I was not disappointed. My initial impressions of it – were just I loved it instantly. Um, it's sort of it's very dark, twisted. It's fascinating. It's beautiful. Uh, it's really not quite like anything else that I think you're going to see. I mean, it's easy to say that about a lot of films, but I think with some called loving, it is definitely its own animal in a lot of ways. I can honestly say I saw it as a kid. And this movie came out the year I was born, which made me feel really, really old watching it. But as a kid, I was a big, I was into comedy a lot. You know, Sam Kinison and Richard Pryor, Eddie Murphy. This movie popped up on his resume. So I watched it when I was probably 12 or 13. That's a kid to me. And I, at the time, thought it was, you know, I'm 13 and I want things that move fast and there's lights and they go and there's boom, boom. <laughs> And I thought, well, this is pretentious, you know, and that's how I felt watching the whole movie. I'm like, is there, are we going to get anywhere? When's Richard Pryor come back? So I, I didn't appreciate it as it, when I was that age. I uh, rewatched it, uh, not actually probably a few years after that. And, and I, I started to, to really appreciate what they were, what Harris was going for is a lot more layered than I really gave it any kind of credit for, I think. And, and now rewatching it, it reminds me, it's kind of like a 50 shades of gray for its time. Only, you know, well done and, and classy, but with, with an allusion to sex, uh, a lot more than just envisioning the sex. It's actually just alluding to it and, and kind of painting in that picture. It was just, it's just a really smart and interesting film that I don't think would ever be appreciated today. I have to say, I never had even heard of this film until it came back on Blu-ray and until Heather, actually, until I read your article about it. And as soon as I did, I'm just like, man, I really need to see this movie. And I'm glad that I did. It definitely does not disappoint. Yeah, it's it's funny that you watch this, Aaron, for Richard Pryor because he's in there, what, three scenes? Yep. And one of them, he's dead? And and it's like his uh, one of his acts. I mean, so, so when he's there, it's completely different from everything else in the movie so he stands out like extensively but as a fan of richard Pryor, you know i was just waiting for those moments and i'm like oh that's it and it was i didn't realize it was a dramatic role i thought it was kind of going to be like a support like his first breakout role in a con it was just was nothing of what i expected but i think that's why i also had a problem with it the first time i watched it because i wanted something different out of it i had expectations i had uh, delusions of my own going into the movie. Watching it after I knew what it was, it made it a lot easier to appreciate it. Well, yeah, it's like watching Brazil for Robert De Niro. You know, it's like, you're going to be a little disappointed in that. You're going to have a bad time. Good example. And it, and it took probably years before I even understood, because it's almost like an, an abstract movie. I mean, it's like a painting uh, in some respects. You have to really think on it to really understand, because they never really give you all the details. It's a lot of piecing it together yourself. 
I don't want to belabor the point, but just getting back to the Richard Pryor thing, there were so many years where when, uh, you know, it's a typical thing when you put something out on video and you, you take the one star who's who finally broke out and you put them front and center, you know, like uh, who was a Brad Pitt and cutting class or whatever, just like right there on the box. I remember the box for car wash had Richard Pryor so huge and it was just like, <laughs> he's barely in the movie. And even the poster for Some Call It Loving, there was one version of the poster where he is so big and he's bigger than everybody else. And it's just like, okay, yeah, he, he was, had a, a great star power and everything when he was the star of the movie. But yeah, he's such a minor role, <laughs> role in this, but it was just so funny how they, they played him up. It's like even going back to uh, The Mac, which is one of my favorite films. And I know Richard Pryor is in it, and I can tell you some of his lines and everything. But again, on one of the video boxes, it was just like, you know, almost like, you know, the face of God, like looking down and everything like this is a Richard Pryor film. It's like, yeah, no, not so much. <laughs> this film is it's, it's very much a puzzle and uh, it does move at its own determined pace. One of the things that strikes me right off the bat is we have, we start with this scene of this widow who's played by Carol White and she is given the, the, choice role of having the voiceover but then i found it interesting that she never gets the voiceover again she's the one that introduces the film but then we never really come back to her talking to us anymore after that no i thought that was a really interesting move too when i first saw it and that's kind of that sort of sets you up for like the ride that you're going to be in for with the rest of the movie because there's so many little touches that are there to kind of make sure that you never know quite what you're dealing with with this movie like aaron i love your you know your metaphor of like a painting i very much think this film is is it's like a layered huge tapestry of a painting and there's gonna and there's so much there's so many layers that even after you've watched it i think even two or three times there are elements that you're still not quite sure like well what did that mean you know they don't they they hide some of the cards in the deck which i love i love that about this film that uh it makes you work for it and i think having scarlet or the carol white character open with the vo and the whole widow scenario completely throws you off it does not it it, it almost isn't related to the rest of the film i mean it is in a way cuz you realize it's a sort of role playing which it gets into but for that being the first scene i mean it's like what <laughs> it's what? so it's so neat I, I think like re after you after you finish the movie, if you go back and immediately like rewatch that, it's almost like the plot description real quick. It's almost like she's surmising what you're about to watch, but it doesn't seem like that way that way the first time you watch it at all. And it just seems like some random like a lot of the like you said the like a lot of the scenes that are in here are just random events where it just feels like the camera just drops in and then pops back out, and it never gives all, the entire scene, so you don't have all the pieces you need. Where this, her voiceover is actually describing exactly what's going on. There's a love between us. This is a game that we're gonna, we've played before. This is a game we're gonna play again. Yada yada yada. It, it really was a description of what's to come. I just don't think it made any sense until the movie was completely over. Well, it's interesting how that widow thing kind of comes back. You know, like that widow outfit will show up again later in the film, and there are some other outfits and roles that these characters play that will kind of weave themselves through this story, like the the idea of the nuns and and how that is kind of jokey at the beginning, but then it's deadly serious at the end of it. And I like the way that we kind of play in play off of these things. 
I agree. It does feel like the camera's just kind of dropping in at times on these these scenarios, these these scenes. And it's not even like we're being told things in vignettes because it feels like we're kind of missing the beginnings and ends of things. We're just kind of getting a little bit of the middle and we don't necessarily know the why and wherefore. Yeah, like somebody's somebody got hit on the head because that camera just popped out of nowhere and then went away. Like, <laughs> like what just happened? We just jumped it. We're just eavesdropping on someone else's life real quick. And then we, we fly away before we get the details. I mean, it's almost dreamlike in a sense. It's sort of like waking up and you remember like a midsection of your dream. Mm-hmm. But then you're like, that's curious. I don't know how I ended up in this situation. And I don't know exactly, maybe even how it ended. The difference with this film is I feel like every move is very purposeful. I feel like everything is stitched exactly where it needs to be or where it wants to be. We just can't see all of the stitches, which is good. But it definitely makes it makes for a very interesting, uh, curious film. Well, like that first appearance of Jeff, the Richard Pryor character, it's like we find out that Salmon King, this Robert Troy character, is a jazz musician, and he goes into the bathroom, and here's Richard Pryor painting this heart on the wall, and Richard Pryor just goes on for the longest time. And yeah, it does feel like it, it's like you are dreaming this, because it's just like, what the hell is this guy even talking about? And he's just kind of riffing. I mean, it, was, it definitely was one of his like stand-up characters. I don't know how much of it was him. Him playing that he was high because I think that he was definitely high a lot on the set. How dare you? <laughs> shame. The shame. I know. I, I'm casting aspersions. I'm speaking ill of the dead, but yeah, apparently it was pretty pretty tough to keep him focused a lot of times when it came to the shooting of this film. But yeah, and here he's doing his whole thing, and then finally, you know, just like turn off the lights, turn off the lights, and finally he does, and oh, the the heart glows in the dark, and it's just like what what am I watching right now? And it did definitely take me quite a while before I kind of got into the rhythm of the film and and kind of figured. Well, I don't want to say I figured it out, but I definitely kind of got right with it. The thing I loved about the character with Jeff, I mean, other than the fact that I mean, yeah, Richard Pryor is. Like he was such a charismatic performer, whether he was doing like something serious or obviously with comedy, you know, he's a very kinetic presence to, to anything he's in. And I also think the the good thing about that character is it adds a whole other layer to Robert, like the Zalman King character, because there are times in the film where he almost seems cold and distant. Like he removes himself emotionally, but then there are other times, but like with Jeff, like that, that humanizes Robert so much. And, you know, like, okay, this guy's, there's more to him than meets the eye. He's not just some rich playboy playing, you know, well, I'm going to play the role of fancy, you know, bohemian jazz musician and play these weird sexual games with my two ladies of the manor or whatever, <laughs> you know, uh, <laughs> Jeff adds a different element to him, which I think is really, like really smart. It's interesting, too, trying to figure out the power dynamics in this relationship between Robert, Scarlett, the Carol Wake character, and Angelica, who's played by Veronica Anderson, and just how they kind of fit in in this castle in which they live. And it took me a little while before I kind of figured out that Scarlett, perhaps because she did have that privilege of the voiceover at the beginning, that she is kind of the one who's in charge, even though we're really following the Robert Troy character. And it seems like he is kind of 
like a kept man and she's the one kind of manipulating the scenarios and stuff with between her and Angelica and then having Robert there and Robert more than anything he's an inactive participant and I think that more than anything he is just serving a purpose a lot of times as being the observer of things and sometimes it almost feels like he's throwing a cold bucket of water on some of the scenarios did you guys kind of get that feeling as well no, I got the feeling that they were doing it for his enjoyment. So as I'm watching it, I'm, I'm seeing Carol and Angelica are trying to appease him. They're trying to engage him. They're engaging in the role playing because he seems to enjoy it. And I think he was getting my mindset. He's getting bored with with the same scenarios over and over with the same people, which is what is so attractive about Sleeping Beauty, because this this girl has been out of the world for eight years and It'll be like a new, a, a new look for him. A new, it's innocence. It's it's something completely different. Something I'm not used to. It's invigorating and, and energizing him and their life. And that's how I took it. I took it as as they were performing for him, and he had just gotten to the point where he was bored. And I think that was illustrated to me uh, when the cheerleading thing came up. But we'll talk about that later. Uh, that's that's how I took it. I think that's definitely a strong element. I mean, the whole power play between Robert and Angelica really fascinated me because there, to me, there seemed to be, there, there were times where he seemed to definitely be like the alpha or the dominant one. Not necessarily, this film isn't really S&M in any sort of strong sense of the term. I mean, if anybody's looking for bondage or you know, any of the classic tropes, you're not going to really find it. But as far as power play, there are times where Robert definitely seemed to be the one in control. But then there, there'd be other moments where Scarlett will come in and assert herself. And she, you know, especially once uh, Jennifer, you know, our sleeping beauty, once she's awakened, you know, and Jennifer starts to school her and the ways of being a lady, you know, and, and all of that. Um, so I found that to be really curious because you're, you're, you're never really, you know, I mean, at the end of the film, you're never quite sure really who, if either one of them are in full control. It just seems like they, it's like a teeter-totter, you know? <laughs> I guess where I was coming from was that scene where Angelica is dressed as the maid and Scarlett starts to ask her, has she ever been a dancer or anything like that? And that's when Robert, to me, just kind of ends that scenario. So I can see that as being one of two things, either that he is in control and that he can choose to start or end these scenarios whenever he wants, or that he is to this point of boredom, you know, to your point, Aaron, and he just wants to, you know, he's just done with this because this does seem to be like he is very restless. And it's interesting too, that we get that scenario played out again, but he allows it to go much, much further later on once Jennifer is there in the picture. Mm -hmm. It's almost like they played the scenario before and he just gotten tired of it. And now he needs new blood, yeah, like a vampire. Jazz it, uh, jazz it up, yeah. It, it doesn't take too long before we're introduced to the whole Sleeping Beauty idea. And one of the things, of course, that's most interesting to me when it comes to this is that in so much of the, you know, the, the many Sleeping Beauty stories, Sleeping Beauty, I mean... It, Going back to the Disney one, which has now become like the most popular version of the story, the movie ends basically when she wakes up. And this movie begins when this character wakes up. You know, that we are in this kind of limbo until this character awakens, and then we really kind of kick the story into high gear. But God, it is so bizarre. When he comes back from the carnival and lets them know, he's just like, oh yeah, I bought a Sleeping Beauty. And it's just like, what the hell? <laughs> Thought you should know I brought a friend. 
And I don't know why Angelica has a shaved head at this point. I mean, we'll find out later on, but it just was like, okay, was this like a flash forward at some point or just were they reusing footage? This is kind of strange. That's a good question. I don't know the answer to that. I, I think maybe, maybe Angelica's wearing a wig the whole time. Is that possible? Like, as could be. Plane, maybe she is always bald. Maybe she's got alopecia. Is anybody else like a little disturbed at the beginning when he's buying Sleeping Beauty and when he's making the purchase and we're hearing all the details and you see how easily the Barker is is totally complacent with, hey, you know what? 50 bucks, you can have as much time as you want and do whatever you want with her. I mean, it's just like a real disturbing and sadistic concept. Yeah, they definitely bring the whole seedy carnival aspect, which I'm a sucker for because there's probably something deeply damaged within me. (laughs) (laughs) But they bring that full forward. And the thing I like about that is, I mean, I know one of the alternate titles for this has been Sleeping Beauty. And obviously they're using... You know, there's the whole trope of her being a sleeping beauty. At the same time, I never really associate this film with any other version of that fairy tale because to me, by having the carnival element, the fairy tale is dead because there's nothing magical. This poor girl has, you know, we come to find out later in the film, has really not no family. She's been with them for, what, eight years? She's been mm-hmm. in the carnival for eight years. They've been drugging her this whole time. There is no telling what matters, what manners of sexual impropriety has been forced on her the film is very tasteful in that respect they don't really they never show you anything even even with like the more sensual sex scenes all the sexuality in this film is more hinted at than anything else it is far from explicit but yeah i mean just the reality that not only is this poor girl been probably just violated for eight years at a carnival that she could be sold like a piece of property on mm-hmm. top of that, yeah, it's intensely, it's very disturbing. And it's it's ultimately what puts the stake through the heart of this being a, a real fairy tale. For me, as I'm watching, I'm like, well, he must he must really either have deep empathy or, or sympathy for her situation or something that makes him want to buy her. Not, not just for sordid sex games. It felt to me like he really wanted her to, to, to escape. Like he wanted to help her escape or something. But then as the movie went on, I became less and less (laughs) applicable to that theory. I started to think maybe not so much. Maybe this is his test. And if she doesn't fail, then he'll stick her right back in. And he's actually just as bad as the Barker. It was just kind of like a real seedy story if you really think about it. Once she is awake, he immediately puts her into the game. Like there isn't a reality to this at all it feels like as soon as she's there and this could just be my interpretation that once she's awake he just thinks of her as another plaything. it doesn't feel like he wants to treat her like a real person and and just begins that role play anew i mean we have the whole like prom scene and everything where they are together and just the way he refers to her you know this whole jelly bean nickname and stuff it's almost like a fatherly thing kind of uh, that he's doing and that we're mixing metaphors a little bit when it comes to she's a sleeping beauty but one of the the earliest things that he talks to her about is that you know she needs to get in bed what by midnight or else the the horses will turn back into mice or something and it's just like okay now we're, we're in cinderella territory here I mean, they're just trying to do the fairy tale parables, I think. With a lot of that, like with those references with Robert, I just kind of, 
I just viewed it as like, cause she obviously is mentally kind of stunted at like a teenage level, which makes it even more disturbing to think about the whole carnival thing that she probably was a virgin going into it. Cause she's clearly, you know, with her interactions with Robert is not experienced really at all with men or with dating or courtship or anything. And um, perhaps that's why they have Scarlet kind of giving her tutelage, but um you know, it just seems like a very, you know, most girls are kind of raised to be like, you know, you want your knight in shining armor, your prince charming. And um, thinking about the era that this was in particular, that Jennifer was probably put under, well, this film was, you know, early 70s. So she was probably put under like mid to early 60s. I'm probably overthinking this. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, she's definitely of a generation where things are, you know, more quote unquote, you know, at least on surface level, pure, your prince will be here for you kind of thing. Well, at that prom scene, she's wearing that, you know, white dress and he's in the white tuxedo and all this. And it's interesting that in that scenario, that's when Scarlet kind of comes in and asserts herself and becomes this mother character slapping him in the face and you know how dare you you know it was basically like how dare you treat my daughter this way was kind of the subtext of it so yeah very interesting that he's definitely playing younger in that scene he wants he wants to be more on her level as far as being her prom date than being an older man when he saw her he saw someone that wasn't jaded I think he saw someone that wasn't tilted in in the seedy world that that he is that that um, Scarlet is and that Angelica are. He, he's he saw someone that was fresh and new and exciting, and he brought it into the world. And she starts talking, and she's very innocent, and naive, and that's something that's it's no longer a game. It's like wow, she's a real person. I haven't had a real person in a long time. It's easy to fall for someone like that, and then. You know, as it, as it goes, just like any other relationship, at some point it starts to get boring. And he definitely starts to get very jealous, especially when they replay that domestic scenario with Jennifer as the maid this time. And there's a seduction, a quote-unquote seduction, where it's Scarlet having a fake lesbian scene. And I know that sounds confusing, so I'll explain in a second to the audience, but where – you know, Scarlet takes Jennifer away and Robert comes over to the door and is overhearing this whole lesbian seduction scene only to open up the door and find that they were, again, role-playing. They were sitting there on either side of the bed, not touching, completely clothed, but just having this kind of banter back and forth, trying to basically pique Robert's interest or poke a little fun at him but he's definitely in that case he's not necessarily a voyeur but he's definitely eavesdropping on this whole thing and it seems like maybe he's getting off on it slash he's really jealous yeah it's it's another like additional element of the whole power play between him and and scarlet for sure because it's it almost seems like anytime he tries to kind of come up with Jennifer, Scarlet kind of cock blocks. <laughs> it is basically just being like, oh, no, 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 sir. You know, that's an instance definitely where I think she shows who's in charge, at least at that moment. Well, I think because he saw her as unique. So that's that's his perfect little flower. And I think Scarlet saw that as a threat. And she obviously has feelings for Robert, too. So she's trying to lead her down the path. And then by doing so, basically illustrates to Robert, look, she's really no different than us. You know, she she can be broken just like all of us. She's not going to stay your perfect flower. At some point she will wilt, which is what I think she's trying to do is lure her down that path, which she does ultimately. 
Heather, do you think that Zalman King is a uh, Prince Charming? I think he's phenomenal this movie. Um, my definition of Prince Charming is probably more in the Rip Torn uh, mold, <laughs> but uh, again, I wow. you know I have issues. No, I think Zalman King's uh, terrific in this. I think he's uh, really great in this role. I mean, he's handsome, but on top of that, I mean, he brings a lot of mystery and layers to this role. I mean, if you just put like a regular pretty boy, you'd just be like, this guy's a dick. You know, you wouldn't really like Robert. And there are times where you don't like Robert, but I think the way that King portrays him, you're, you're interested in him. You're like, what is, what is this guy's deal? Um, it's, it's funny. Cause I don't know if you guys felt like this, but, um, Watching this movie, it, it reminded me a lot of watching some of Radley Metzger's earlier works, like his mid to late 60s work, like Camille 2000, and definitely like the Licorice Quartet, you know, just sort of because you have like these two, you know, like Scarlett and Robert are these beautiful, young, obviously sort of like well-traveled people who are rich and moneyed, but bored. And so they kind of like unveil layers to kind of keep their lives interesting and thrilling and and some of it's sexual and some of it's more mental play and um i don't know i think this film would make a fantastic double bill within almost you know any of radley metzger's more moody films they should remake it and cast david duchovny because it's the same guy that's no what I, and that's what i kept thinking the whole movie i'm like that's david duchovny i mean now i know why he's in red shoot diaries it's totally david duchovny i kept thinking of marjo gortner Oh, my God. <laughs> Mike, what is wrong with you? <laughs> Sorry. He just looks like him to me. Like, kind of a you know Roman nose and the big hair and everything. Marjo. I mean, I like Marjo Corner, but all I can, when I think of him, the two things I think of is when you come in back, Red Rider, of course. But then the other thing I think of is Star Crash, where he, there's that, of course. Where that scene where he's like, woo! Like, <laughs> Star Crash. Oh my gosh. Okay, I'm sorry. His hair should get its own billing. And yes. Yeah, it's phenomenal. I kept wondering, like, does he comb it or just wake up and it's just crazy like that? I think God styled it like that. The Lord <laughs> put his hand upon <laughs> the Lord put his hand on Marjo's head and said, You are blessed, my son. And there you have the holy quaff of Marjo Gortner. Which is very similar to that mane that Zalman King is wearing. That's all I'm saying. That is a mess. I don't know what's going yeah. on with that. But if you're pretty and rich, I guess you don't have to comb your hair ever. It's very like I'm 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 a moneyed trust a fund kid who's playing a jazz musician at night kind of thing. He he plays that role quite well. I mean, that's it's too bad that Zalman didn't really get to do more serious acting, actually, because I think Blue Sunshine might have been the last thing he did. Well, he left to do like softcore, right? I mean, that's what he ended up doing is like softcore porn, basically. He directed, yeah, like Wild Orchid, of course, Red Shoe Diaries, Two Moon Junction films. But after seeing this film, I'm like, man, this dude was kind of wasted. Like, he's really, really good in this. He is. He is. He does give a great understated performance. Very David Duchovny-esque, too. <laughs> One of the things that I kept thinking of, speaking, I guess, of Two Moon Junction and Wild Orchid and stuff, I was reminded, and crazy Art Garfunkel-ish type hair, I was reminded at times of uh, Boxing Helena when I was watching this oh, movie. Oh, yeah. Good point. Oh, no. <laughs> no, it, it makes not quite as good. Uh, I mean, this this is better, is what I'm saying. It's like, Boxing Helena was not a very good movie, in my opinion. but. I can see what you're saying with the concept. I, I guess it was kind of the idea of the control kind of thing, you know, and it feels like 
Jennifer, the Sleeping Beauty, is she belongs, quote unquote, to Robert. You know, he he literally buys her, mm-hmm. and it just feels like as this movie is going on, he's losing more and more control of her as she's. I guess, waking up more and more because there are times where she's talking about like, I can't tell what's a dream and what's real. I've been asleep for so long. And when she, Oh God, when she has that scene where she talks about the men in her life and just how she would have these men come in and could, you know, she would picture them and then they would go away and she would be so alone for so long. And that scene is just so heartbreaking. And especially it seems to be kind of, turning off Robert a little bit, at least that's my interpretation again, just like hearing how many men she's been with. And then, uh, but she is basically kind of painting it in this romantic way. Like it's you, I've been waiting for all this time. Like you were the one that, that kissed me and woke me up. Basically you were the Prince Charming. Well, and she says it so matter of factly, you know, as though eh, it happens. And, And I think when he's hearing that in his mind, because from my perspective, he's painted her in this box, huh, to go to your Helena reference, uh, he's painted her in this box where she is this innocent, perfect flower, and now the petals are starting to fall off. I mean, he's starting to see, you know, she's not this perfect thing that I thought she was. She's She's been tainted, and that that takes the bloom off the rose a little bit, and it kind of brings his enjoyment of having her as his companion down and almost, I think, Basically, he starts to see her as less and less as a person and more and more as a thing after that. I think there's definitely a lot of signs that points to just Robert being so jaded, like with the topless cheerleading where he convinces the waitress to get on stage, you know, and do this. And that's probably like the most actual like super nudity you see in the film. It was almost shocking to see that. Well, I know because everything else has been so tasteful up to that point, because even all the you know, lesbian nuns and menage a trois and, you know, power plays, all of that is done incredibly tasteful. And you never really see a full love making scene with anybody there's lots of hints and everything and then all of a sudden there's just like bam and it's it's big and it's broad and it's there and but i think what struck me the most with that scene was the look on his face because i mean you just think most guys that you know are into women have this like beautiful woman who's like pretty much naked as a cheerleader doing this like routine i mean most guys would be like throwing dollars at it it rain make it a rain yep (laughs) Because that's what men do when they see a beautiful woman. They just well, they basically just take the wallet right ladies out. Ladies love that when you throw ones oh. at them on the street. Hell well, yes. I mean, if they're naked and dressed as cheerleaders, I'm just saying. <laughs> I'm just saying all men throw dollars at beautiful women just if they're naked and on stage. No, no, Heather, I'm saying you found us out. That's pretty much what we <laughs> do. Oh, that's I'm how you get you dates. Out. Yeah. <laughs> You're attractive. Here's a 20. How's that? Right. <laughs> <laughs> It seems to work really well on Eight Mile, I'll tell you. (laughs) (laughs) But, but, you know, I mean, so many many people would be very thrilled to have that scenario. And Robert just looks, like, unmoved. You know, he's just – and, I mean, in a weird way, I actually found that really haunting because it's like there's – yeah, I guess because at this point you've seen glimpses of his humanity, his tenderness at times with Jennifer, um, certainly his concern for his friend Jeff – so it's like, God, what? I mean, obviously, like, there was a good person or there's a good person in there somewhere. But, like, you know, what what has made this young? I mean, because he's young, too. It's not like he's some old guy that's been through eight miles of things and is just jaded by life. I mean, this young guy is already just so 
jaundiced. You know, that's sad. That's really, that's a pretty sad thing if you think about it. I, I think it's so, I mean, he just, he just wants something perfectly innocent and that seems to be his, his big dream. And he, he did show like hints of a human under all that. But I mean, at the end, he ends up basically just putting her back to sleep, just drugging her again. So I don't know how much of a human he actually ultimately is. He just, he seems like he needs someone to be perfect and he keeps searching for that perfect thing. I, I don't know. It seems like he's just a lost, lost soul. Like a really lost soul. One thing you brought up in the beginning is like there is a circular nature to this film. There are themes that start at the beginning that come back. And one thing that always stuck with me is something that the Barker says or the doctor, you know, carnival doctor says to in the whole show is warning he who awakens Sleeping Beauty uh, is in danger of awakening himself. And it's funny because I almost wonder if there's an element where Robert was hoping to find salvation. Mm-hmm with her and that's something I kind of wondered when I first watched it too and then just realized that he wasn't going to change and that yeah she's not a doll she's not a caricature she's a she's a human being too and then he just basically ends up kind of selling his soul in a way not literally but you know he sells what was left of his humanity especially after you know Jeff dies you know he's gone I mean but don't, don't you think he wanted I mean he really really thought okay with the promises that come with the Barker provided him with, you know, it's going to wake you up, that he saw in, in this the opportunity to to escape and to, this is my, this could be my perfect thing, my innocent perfect thing that will lead me out of this boring, dreadful life I've had forever. Oh, absolutely. I mean, he'd, he certainly wouldn't be the first person or first character to try and find uh, personal redemption through another person only to realize, well, you can't really use humans like that. Like if that's something you're going to achieve, it has to be through yourself. Robert's a character that was not ready, (laughs) was not ready for that evolution or epiphany. With the waitress slash naked cheerleader scene, you know, I know that in the audio commentary, Harris describes it as being like a shot of agra or something that, you know, like at this point, Robert needs this stimulation for him to go back and, and, basically make love with with jennifer at this point it's funny with the with the cheerleader scene i've seen so much role play already in this movie that i wasn't wasn't really sure how much was role play and how much was robert still being unsatisfied because there were moments some of my favorite thing is when she's doing the cheer and everything and he's just like yeah no that's not working (laughs) And it's like, okay, is that role play or is that you're not making my dick hard? So I love that you can read it either way. Yeah, I saw it as the latter. I saw it <laughs> as the latter. Like, it, what, nothing's working for him anymore. Right. And then he left in the middle of her cheer, and it was a fantastic cheer. There's no reason to leave. But yeah, it's, and then it seems like it's Jeff's death that ultimately is the wake-up call for him. And that that's really what prompts this kind of road trip that he takes with Jennifer. And they end up, of course, at the Fantasy Motel. I mean, haha. But then here we are at this Fantasy Motel, and here she is dressed in the widow costume. So again, it's that whole cyclical nature of this thing. And it's like she has become that jaded person or has assumed that role that we saw Scarlet in earlier. So it definitely seems like, yes, this isn't going to work out because now she's into this role playing. And when they come back to the house, ultimately 
kind of sealing her fate, she's right there with him as far as, okay, now we're going to play nuns. You know, you've seen the tap dancing nuns before, and she doesn't do any tap dancing, but she definitely is right there. Like, okay, let's put on the habit. Let's do it. Yeah, the thing I love about that, too, I mean, I love the whole Laurent in general in this film, but with the nuns, I love how all of a sudden, to me, like, once you see them again as nuns, it's ultimately a little more sinister. You're like, oh, shit, like, what is going to happen to this this poor girl? And they're they're bald now, which, you know, you're like, oh, this, you know, which almost makes you think, I would think, especially that time period of, like, maybe, like, the Manson girls, like, a very culty kind of thing, not, like, cult film, but religious cult thing, it's... Um, it adds definitely like a different pallor to it for sure. Well, and they make such a big deal over that wine. I was just like, gosh, is this kind of a Jim Jones thing that's happening right now? I mean, this, I, I think it presaged uh, or the, the Jim, the Jonestown thing by a couple of years, but I was right there with you as far as like, is this girl going to be sacrificed now or what? <laughs> oh, no, I thought it was totally, I mean, they show, he gives him the bottle at the beginning. So I, I figured he was putting her back to sleep. I, still don't know why i guess she just wasn't doing it for him so you can go back to sleep now uh did anybody think it was like really callous that people are playing dress up at a funeral because <laughs> i'm like I, th- I think uh jennifer thinks she's actually part of a game like i'm not even convinced she understands that jeff is dead she she just doesn't get it and doesn't understand any of it it's it's a it's a warped life they all have yeah i mean that's that's kind of a really, that's actually such a good point. I like that because, I mean, basically these are people who have only, who've lived so much of their lives now through characters that it's almost like it's hard to be yourself. And I mean, with Jennifer, I mean, what reality has she ever really known? I mean, other than maybe her early developing years, which she doesn't obviously have that clear of a memory pre-carnival. I mean, this, this poor girl, I mean, I don't know which way is up. Yeah, <laughs> especially being you know, being in the steed of those two. Yeah, and when when she finally when he puts her back to sleep, and 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 that's done to me. That was almost like the, like I guess the movie clicked for me in a way because I I started to kind of understand in my opinion what the themes were, which is you know it's really about modern love and how we're always looking. You know, we get bored and we tire easily and we find something new, and then eventually that ends up being boring too. So we have to leave it and then we end up right back where we started. And to me, that's kind of what at the very end, that's kind of how I felt. I felt like that's what they were trying to tell me. I don't know if that's exactly what he was trying to tell me, but that's what I felt like he was trying to tell me. Well, there's one thing to go back and then try to find that doctor character and and sell the body back, sell Jennifer back, but that he assumes that mantle of the doctor and is doing the same shtick, I mean, line per line of that earlier character. And now he's the one that's selling the kisses to the Sleeping Beauty. And he's probably the one selling shots at her for 50 bucks a pop. I mean, what a horrible, horrible thing. You know, I mean, I'm smiling as I'm saying this, but it's it's just such a, a delicious irony, the way that this film ends with him assuming that role and now basically pimping her out and just it's got to be torture for him every single night. But I think that he kind of enjoys it. And it also plays into ultimately, I think throughout this film, he is very much a voyeur and here he is like probably getting his kicks a little bit too, by selling Jennifer night after night after night. That is not a happy ending. For, no. I mean, for anybody involved, but especially poor Jennifer. Cause I mean, the, the other thing, it's not really implied, but you have to think about just how, 
part of the reason why he even bought her was to shake things up, presumably. Mm-hmm. Well, he's going to get tired of this scenario. What's going to happen to her when he gets tired? I mean, she's not going to stay young and beautiful forever to him, even though she's asleep. She's still a human being. And I mean, everybody's going to age. So, yeah, it's it's not it's a no fun scenario. When I rewatched it, like as it ends, you got Troy, basically the carnival doctor. At any point, did you guys think maybe this entire movie has been in her mind? Like the whole movie's actually been her dream? When it was over and I rewatched it the second time, it's just one of those things where it kind of struck me as if perhaps, and this is just being ridiculous, I'm sure, but perhaps the entire movie is because Troy is the, the actual doctor at the carnival. She's hearing him and she did talk throughout the movie about how she would have dreams and she didn't know if those dreams were real and she didn't know what was what and things would start randomly and end randomly. And she, when she had that conversation in the middle of the movie, and then you go to the end where Troy is now the, the, the Barker. All I kept thinking was, you know what? Maybe she's just envisioning these people she hears every day in her dream. It's definitely an interesting interpretation of it. Yeah. Well, I mean, and that actually kind of, you know, lends itself well to the fact that, I mean, one of the reasons I love this film is there are, there's not just one way to really interpret it. There are so many ways you can interpret different facets of it. And I don't, I think most of them are not implausible. I mean, it's, I don't think, you know, that's not what I came away with, but I think that's a cool interpretation. And I mean, honestly, the lines are so blurred uh, throughout the whole film. I mean, who knows? It very well could be. Yeah, I heard one interesting reading of the film where they were talking about the curtains and when the curtains were open in the house versus the curtains closed, and then even other curtains that are around. I mean, there's the curtains that kind of surround her her bed, and there's the curtains that the woman who's playing the cheerleader role is standing in front of, and just looking at when curtains are open and closed as kind of an interpretation of what's role play slash fantasy and what's real life as close to real life as this motion picture can get to because even when he's outside of the house it still feels like things aren't necessarily real i mean that he heads to a a hotel called fantasy you know just like things are not necessarily everything that they appear to be as we're watching this so interpreting the whole thing as a dream is definitely one option of it i mean either way it ends with somebody being sold at a carnival and people are fondling her and whatnot but still did you guys watch the deleted scenes that are on the DVD? I did not, no. Uh, I have. It has been, uh, it's been a little while, I'll be honest. I watched them when I, uh, wrote, when I wrote about the release in the film last year. My memory of them is I thought they were very interesting, but, you know, with some deleted scenes, you're like, oh, that definitely should have been kept, and others, you're like, oh, okay. And I think the film itself is pretty tight, It's a very tight film, and they talk in the audio commentary about how it was a much longer film when it was showed the first time, and that basically somebody talked Harrison to cutting it down, and that he's much happier with the shorter version. There was only one scene that I found really fascinating for me, and it was it's Robert visiting a former flame who is a nun. And I think that that that's kind of where some of these things play into things is that, you know, he's kind of reliving some fantasies of her via the nun fantasy going on at the, the dream castle. And that just was like a little bit of a, a clue kind of thing. And, in you know, but that also, kind of took it out of the dream a little bit too so i can understand why he would end up cutting that because 
it does seem to leave these scenes where you are questioning what's real and what's not. And I think also the cutting style of it kind of plays into that too. You know, you talked about the whole idea of the camera just kind of dropping in and then leaving, cutting those heads and tails off of things, you know, tightens it up quite a bit, but also makes it feel a little less real to it. Yeah. And can I ask you guys, we're all film buffs. So can you think, I couldn't think of any movie that did this uh, or at least did it so well where, where you do have like large portions of the story left out and scenes are not complete and it still works as a narrative. I mean, I couldn't, I couldn't think of it. I tried and tried and tried and I couldn't think of anything that pulled it off as well, even though this is a very, it's an old movie and whatnot, but it still works. I'm trying to think because there was a movie that we talked about recently on the show that had that kind of similar editing style as far as kind of coming in in the middle of a scene and leaving before it ended. I want to say that Arthur Penn's Night Moves might have been that film, but now I'm questioning if that's even correct. It's hard for me to think of an American film. I think that's almost more of a surreal experimental approach you see. I think that was a lot more common, at least with European mm-hmm. and international directors. I mean, I, I kind of think, and, it, and it's a completely different animal, but I mean, like, and I think in a way, like, Kordorowski's Fando Elise kind of does that, where the film, it makes sense to me. But yeah, I mean, the way that it's cut and the narrative, I could see where maybe it would drive some people a little crazy. I mean, Hordorowski in general, his stuff is, you know, has a lot of surrealism, which is why one of my favorites. But, um, but with Fando, at least there's definitely like a plot, but it's cut in a way to where, you know, at times you're not really sure, you know, it doesn't really, I think, make sense and gel for you till the end. This is definitely one of those where if you watch it with five friends, three of them are going to be in, you're going to have to tell them they don't get it. Right. <laughs> Unfortunately, you're going to have to be that pompous friend and be like, you, you just don't get it. And they're like, what do you mean I don't get it? Well, you just don't get it. You know, it's it's just one of those movies. Yeah, and I'm sorry, but you got to actually really pay attention to this film, too. Yeah, you do. Not a good one to watch, you know, bring your friends over, have a couple beers kind of thing, because it's just like, no, let's let's all pay attention to the film, because otherwise you're you're not going to pick up on what's happening here. Plus, it'd be a little disturbing, since it's basically about a woman that's put to sleep so men can grope her. Hey, guys, let's not drink to that. Let's... <laughs> Sounds like a party to me. <laughs> Woo-hoo. Sounds like a Thursday night. Heather's like, I'm <laughs> hanging up. Oh, please, Mike knows me better than that. <laughs> now, she'd be the one setting up the Facebook invite. Yeah. People be like, I don't know if I want to go to your double feature of, you know, water power and uh, you know, in a glass cage. Or right. <laughs> like, come on. Yeah. No. It's funny. But yeah, no, it's definitely not a party movie. A Star Crash would be going back to Marjo Gortner. It all leads back. All, all roads lead to Gortner. We're going to take a break and play an interview with the writer-director of Some Call It Loving, Mr. James B. Harris, right after this quick break. Let me ask you a question. Are you getting enough? I bet you'd love more, right? Well, AdamandEve.com wants to give you more with 10 free gifts. First, you'll get a sexy surprise for her. Second, a specially selected toy for him. And third, a little something we know you'll both enjoy. Plus, you'll get six full-length adult movies on DVD. And number 10, free shipping on your entire order. So what do you have to do to get your 10 free gifts? It's not hard. Just go to adamandeve.com and select any one item. It could be an adventurous new toy 
sexy piece of lingerie or anything you desire. Just enter offer code BOOTH at checkout and you'll get all 10 free gifts. Go check out adamandeve.com today. Select one item and get 10 free gifts, including free shipping when you enter offer code BOOTH. That's B-O-O-T-H at adamandeve.com. Hello from Cinema Detroit. We are Metro Detroit's only truly independent cinema and also the only first-run, seven-day-a-week movie theater in greater downtown. We deliver an eclectic mix of current, indie, genre, cult, and classic movies in the heart of the city. Like a sommelier choosing wine for his or her guests, we handpick our slate of films, many of which are exclusive to the metro Detroit area, the state of Michigan, or occasionally the entire Midwest region. Cinema Detroit features in a unique setting in a former furniture store and a warm hometown atmosphere, including always fresh popcorn, Detroit-made Fago soda, and other locally created treats. Please visit our website, cinemadetroit.com, for the latest features and showtimes. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Instagram. We look forward to seeing you soon at 4126 3rd Street in the city, zip code 48201. It's not easy having a good time. And it's not cheap, either. Every week, the Projection Booth brings you a new show, possibly even two, focusing on all genres of cinema. If you've sat through the seven-hour Conan episode, the six-hour Star Wars episode, or even the hour-long Superb Man episode, you know that Mike and his co-host put forth a lot of work into researching the movies, tracking down the interview subjects, and putting together one of the best podcasts on the internet. Now I'm asking you if you can repay all that hard work by giving back to the projection booth. The show has a Patreon fundraiser at Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash projection booth. You can donate as little as a dollar a month. That's $12 a year. At least 50 great shows and two terrible ones. That's the price of two matinee tickets. Now isn't the projection booth worth it? Once again... That's patreon.com slash projection booth. Donate today. It's the right thing to do. This is Adam Spiegelman, the host of my second favorite movie podcast called Proudly Resents at proudlyresents.com. And you are listening to my favorite, the number one, the projection booth. Mike put so much work into it. If you listen to my show, I put no work into it. Enjoy the rest of the show, you lucky son of a gun. What was your first meeting like with Stanley Kubrick? The meeting was uh, was designed to uh, distribute fear and desire at the TV, because that's the business I was in at the time. When I came, I had been in that before I went in the Army and, and went back to it. After I got discharged, we were distributing films to TV. I had attended a screening of 
Killer's Kiss that Stanley had done as his second feature. And uh, after this, he asked me if I could distribute Fear and Desire for TV, but uh, had no distribution at that point. And I said, sure, come to the office tomorrow and, and we'll work out a deal. Uh, when he came to my office the uh, the next day, uh, he was embarrassed to say that the uh, rights had been tied up in a litigation, I suppose. The distributor who distributed Fear and Desire had died in a plane crash. And so it was, uh, the rights were tied up in his estate and had to be you know, dealt with uh, judges and things. And it was so complicated that he, he told me he just couldn't deliver the film. And it just put us in a position of nothing to talk about. So uh, he told me he had just sold Killer's Kids, the United Artists, for $75,000. And that uh, they had set the doors open there if, if he's going to be making any other movies. said, I, I shouldn't wonder for $75,000. <laughs> They'd be, they'd be crazy to keep the door closed. He had nothing going at that time, and, and I was really sick of selling films to TV. Never fancied myself to be a salesman. It wasn't anything I really liked doing. I jumped at the opportunity to say, well, since you're not doing anything and, and I want to get out of this, uh, maybe we could get together and help each other, and, and I could become a producer, and you'll be the director, and we'll make movies, which he thought would be a terrific idea. The only problem was we didn't have anything to do, except a company, you know, so we decided, to, okay, we'll be partners, we'll call it Harris Cooper Pictures, and, and go from there. So that night after work, I went to a bookstore, Scribner's on Fifth Avenue, and, and uh, started looking at the bookshelves and came across a crime novel called Clean Break. And uh, I read it, and it was about a lovely of a racetrack, and, and I said, Jesus, this could be a terrific movie. So I gave the book the next day to his family, and he agreed completely, and uh, I found out the rights were available, and, and I purchased the, the screenwrite, the film rights, and uh, we had a project. So then it was just a question of, what do you do next? You get a screenplay, which Stanley asked me if I knew a writer named Jim Thompson, and I said, not really. And he said, well, you've got to start reading The Killer Inside Me and other books that Thompson had written. And uh, he said, I thought he'd be terrific to work with uh, Stanley on the screenplay. Which, which we followed through with, and, and uh, we hired Tim Thompson, got a screenplay, and uh, I don't know how much detail you want to go into from this point on, but that, that's the genesis of, of, of the Nexus, or whatever you call it, of how we got started and, and how the killing got made. In um, Thompson's biography, there seemed to be some controversy as far as his screen credit or how much he was credited for doing on the film. What was your memory of how much he worked on that? In those days, there was a credit that it was called additional dialogue. I, w- I would think, you know, in retrospect, that, that if it was done today, we would have given Jim Thompson equal credit with Stanley on writing the screenplay. But in those days, uh, I guess it was not out of the ordinary to to, uh, to have that additional dialogue credit. Thompson agreed to it at the time, so, so it was only after all was said and done, I think, that... that uh, Either he or his, or his family or something thought that he did not get the best of the deal. I would kind of agree with that today. In those days, it didn't seem like it was such a miscarriage of justice. That's how, how the whole thing, uh, you know, not unlike uh, when Stanley did uh, Dr. Strangelove and, and, and Terry Southern came on after we had done a, a serious version. I mean, it was originally intended to be a straight drama, and... Uh, and then Stanley met with, uh, with Terry Southern, and, and it was decided to t- turn it into a satire comedy. Southern received the third credit. You know, it was 
family working with, with uh, the author of, of the book, Red Alert, Terry got a set of credit, which he complained about. And, and when I talked to him after that, he, he said, well, the reason that he complained was that the most important thing about the, the contribution he made was that he made it funny. And he said he'd be entitled to at least a second credit on it. And uh, But there's always those kind of problems. Everybody thinks their contribution was the most important. That's what, that's what the Jim Thompson situation was. But at the time, he didn't object to it, and that's what we did. What was he like to work with? He was just such a sweet man, a really a nice guy, uh, uh, very cooperative. You know, don't forget, we weren't doing his novel. We were doing Lionel White's novel, and so there was no pride of authorship. I mean, there was no, you know, like a lot of authors of novels, when you do adaptations of their work, they really get kind of concerned about any departures from the original work, which is usually the case and a necessity in, in doing adaptations. But since uh, there was no problem with him, he was very cooperative, a sweet man. I can only remember him that way. We work with him again afterwards. I mean, you don't work with people the second time if, 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 they, if they're not really uh, good to work with the first time. So uh, not only did we use Jim Thompson again to, to work with us on Paths of Glory, but uh, I commissioned him to write a, a, a novel for me called Lunatic at Large, which he did. And, and uh, we never made it into a movie, but we kept the relationship going. And, and so... So he'd worked on The Killing. He, he wrote a book for me in Stanley called Lunatic at Lodge, and he, he made a contribution on Paz of Glory. I think he, he has a second credit on that. Yeah, it's, it's Kubrick, uh, uh, Thompson, and Calderon, yeah, on Paz of Glory. Did you ever meet Lionel White? Oh, yeah. Yeah, he lives in Long Island, and, and Stanley and I are from New York, so when I acquired uh, Clean Break, naturally, it was, it was pretty... I guess, protocol to, to get together with the author of the book to discuss how he's going to turn it into a screenplay and so forth. And uh, he was another great guy. He's terrific. I think he eventually moved to the West Coast as well. I guess I remember Lionel White was in sort of into, into like race cars, you know, and, and, you know, those kind of MGs and things like that. In fact, they used one in the killing, but, but because Tim Carey, who shot the horse, was in an MG. You remember, I mean, I don't know if you're Remember it in that detail. That scene of of Tim Carey with the uh, the African American guy at the racetrack. Oh, that's one of the best scenes I've ever seen on film. Edwards is that his name? I forget his name. Uh, James Edwards uh, uh, that, that played that scene with Tim. It worked out quite well. Yeah, I always thought maybe the horseshoe that that that, that blows out the tire was a little bit of a, of a stretch. But it seems to work. I mean, the, the film is really uh, well received, and, and mostly because we had the courage. I guess maybe it's fools rush in. I don't know, but we to keep the structure of the story the same as Lionel White had created it in the book, which was a whole series of flashbacks examining each participant in the funeral. I mean, in the in the in the robbery uh, from from beginning up to the seventh race. After we finished the film. And, and, and seeing it at a preview, everybody jumped all over us saying that we should re, re-edit the picture into a straight-line story, that the flashbacks was just going to you know, antagonize the audience and, and irritate them and, and, uh, and you shouldn't tell the story that way. We actually, you know, like if enough people tell you you're sick, maybe you should lie down. And we said, Jesus, let's, let's go back to New York before we deliver the picture to the United Artists and re-edit it and see what, what, what maybe, maybe it could work, you know. So we, we broke it down and re-edited it 
And it was terrible. And we said, how could we even have considered this? I mean, the whole reason that we were attracted to the story was the structure. Let's let's keep it the way we like it. You know, you got to believe in ourselves. And we did. You know, the picture had great reviews, and and it it launched our careers, really. Uh, I'm so glad we we didn't listen to all of the pundits and and experts who advised us to to re-edit it. You had such an amazing cast with that one. I mean, Sterling Hayden and Elijah Cook Jr., Marie Windsor, so many great, great yeah. classic yeah. actors. Yeah, Joe Sawyer and, and, and uh, um, uh, the guy that played the cop. Uh, they're, they're all great. They're all great. Cola Coriani, you know, a Spanish chess playing friend from New York, an ex-wrestler who is not an actor, but we brought him out anyway to do the fight in the bar. You know, the distractions of Sterling Hayden could break in and, and or a cookie could let him in the door and, and he could perform the robbery. Terrific that It was really great. And when I met Sterling, he had seen practically every picture made, so he knew all of these actors, uh, their work, and, and, you know, he he knew about Tim Carey, which is, a, I thought, a real find. I mean, to get, I mean, he's difficult to work with, but the Jesus on the screen, his, his performances are, are memorable, you know, and... Um, uh, but he was really tough to work with, Tim Carey. But there are a lot of people that, you know, you don't know it when you see the film because you only see the, the things you put. Yeah, I think you might be the person who's worked with Carey the most in his career. I'm not sure because between The Killing and Paths of Glory and then you brought him back with with Fast Break, I mean, Fast there walking. must have been... Fast oh, sorry, Fast Walking. Yeah. There must have been some sort of chemistry there between you two. Yeah, yeah, because uh, he... Uh, he was also in One Eye Jacks, you know. Yeah. So that's a day. I mean, he got into One Eye Jacks because of Stanley, even though Stanley wound up uh, removing himself from the project. Uh, uh, but Marlon, uh, you know, appreciated because Marlon had, had seen the killing, and that's why we're, we're working with Marlon. And he had seen the killing in Paths of Glory, so he, he was quite familiar with, with Tim. And so Tim was an easy sell uh, for, for Marlon to, to, to put him in One Eye Jacks. Uh, Ted Garcia was the guy I was trying to think of that played the bad cop in, in The Killing. He's, he's, he's very, but, uh, you know. How far along were you guys when it came to the decision to remove yourselves from One-Eyed Jack? And and my other question about that one is uh, who found the source material when it came to that one? I, I, I don't want to bore you with too long a story, but after we had done The, the Killing in Paris of Glory, uh, we were really sought after by lots of, lots of actors to want to work with us, and Marlon being the one of them, and since Marlon, as far as we were concerned, was like number one, we decided to, to, to join forces with Marlon. That was the concept, that we were going to get together and make movies. We had several meetings trying to decide which project we were going to do, and everything that Marlon had suggested, Stanley and I weren't crazy about, and the things we suggested, Marlon didn't respond to. Finally, at one point, Marlon just uh, uh, invited Stanley to dinner and, and told him that... Uh, he has a commitment at Paramount that he must fulfill, and, and he wanted Stanley to, uh, to, to, before we got started on our own project, he wanted Stanley to join him in, in directing the commitment, and uh, he already had uh, multiple scripts done on, on the uh, on the Western. I was then relegated to be looking for, for, for projects that we could do after when I actually was completed. So I wasn't really involved in that point in, in any further development of One Eye Jack. I went out looking for the project. The one I found was Lolita, actually. But I wasn't about to share that with anybody except Stanley. 
the basic material uh, Marlon already had. He had developed the baby half a dozen screenplays. I think it, I, I forget the name of the book. It, it was just something, The Life or Something of Henry Jones. Stanley told me after having dinner with Marlon uh, of, of what Marlon's idea was to, to have Stanley help him get rid of that commitment. He gave Stanley the, the latest script to read, and, and Stanley and I discussed it, and, and Stanley said it's, it's a script that's really good. And what, was, what should we do? We want to keep the relationship with Marlon for the future, so if, if we back off this, uh, that, that would break the relationship. So we figured that the best way to do it was to go to Marlon, and Stanley did, and said, uh, look, I'll, I'll do this if you let me redevelop the script, rewrite the script. And so Rollin agreed, and uh, we called in uh, Calder Willingham. Uh, and so Stanley and Calder Willingham then uh, went over to Paramount and started uh, rewriting the script. Finally, that script was finished, and, and uh, then Marlon called in what he referred to as the old pro, and a writer named Guy Trasper. And they started doing policies and rewrites. And, and as the thing developed, uh, Marlon and Stanley were just uh, uh, not seeing things the same way. You know, Stanley had never worked for anybody before. Up to that point, all his pictures, including the two we made together, were totally our, our call on everything. We had no, nobody we had to account to. And in this particular case, Stanley was, was having to deal with Marlon's eccentricities and, and calling meetings and not showing up and and having debate about script points, which was really eight people all pitching in. It was, it was a nightmare. So Stanley decided that, that uh, let's get on to making Lolita now that we found that and, and forget about Marlon, which we did. So we Stanley extricated himself from that deal, and, and uh, we took a walk. The only trouble was, Kirk called the next day. <laughs> Kirk Douglas called the next day and said that uh, he's been shooting a few days on Spartacus, and he, he he's not satisfied with what what the result has been. Could could we make a deal to loan Stanley out to to to, to Kirk so he could direct Spartacus? So once again, you know, like I was in the background uh, playing around with Lolita, uh, you know, waiting to get that thing going. So uh, and this time the picture did get. I mean, Stanley did direct Spartacus. So we developed the Lolita script in the meantime. You know, bringing another couple over from from Switzerland and doing that. And once again, now, Stanley wasn't really crazy about being sort of a hired hand on, on Spartacus, but it was good for our company. We, we could use the, 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 the money. And also we felt that, that we had only done two films, and, and Stanley's going to have a chance to work with three of the greatest actors and directors in, in Houston, and Lawton, and Olivier. I mean, how can you pass that up? Uh, you know, that's, that's in addition to Kirk, which we had worked with before, but... All of these incredible people. So we made a deal with Kirk to to follow Stanley, and and so uh, so Stanley did directed Spartacus. You know, so that that put me out of business really for a couple of years, uh, standing by on all of this stuff because what I was doing is really finding other projects and and, and helping develop Lolita. You know, but it couldn't we couldn't get to it until Stanley got through with Spartacus. Yeah, I know it's probably a dumb thing to say, but I think that Kirk Douglas was very impressed working with Stanley that he invites him to be the director of Spartacus. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and I have to pay the glory. Uh, there's no question about that. Um, everything seemed to work on the glory with us. I don't know if we were lucky in a lot of ways. And you know, <clears throat> Kirk was our first choice and, and uh, to play the part, and he agreed to do it. 
uh, we were able to do it for a budget, limited budget, because it was not what you call a, a obvious commercial uh, possibility. I mean, it, you know, it's an anti-war film. It's, it's kind of downbeat. And, and so we had a limited budget, a limited schedule, and and, um, and, and Stanley pulled it off, and Kirk was impressed. But as you say, he never would have asked to, to have Stanley direct Spartacus if, if, if it hadn't been uh, an impressive uh, bit of work on Path of Glory with Kirk. Yeah, everybody in Paths of Glory seems to be, you know, on their their A game for that one. But I really have to say, George McCready just blows it out of the water for me. I love watching his performance. Yeah, he and he and and Alfonso work together so beautifully. They 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 were terrific and uh, so professional. You know, always knowing their lines, always rehearsing on their own to make sure that that uh, they they could knock it off uh, without any delay. I mean. It, it was just terrific. You know, the only problem on the picture was Tim Carey. <laughs> he comes off great in the movie, but, but uh, uh, I've, I've said this, you know, in many many interviews and books and stuff. But unfortunately, I had to I had to fire Tim on that picture because he was just holding everything up to the extent where we were running the risk of having a mutiny uh, from, from everybody who was contributing so much and working so hard, and and Tim just. Uh, I don't know. He he, would, he loved publicity and things. And I was awakened one morning by the police saying that they they had been carried down at the police station. He, he had been picked up on a on a on a country road, uh, having been kidnapped. And, and, uh, and they were concerned that maybe we had staged this as expensive publicity for the picture. And uh, I knew nothing about it, of course. And, and, and we're scheduled. We're shooting every day. We can't afford to him to be sitting in a police station uh, because they, they just didn't believe the story. You know, they said kidnapping is not a, a, a thing that usually happens over here. It's so unusual, and it seems like he's dying. I mean, he's, he's, he's acting in your film. And, uh, and it was pretty tough to convince the police, and, and pretty tough to convince me, too. I think that's, that, that Tim had staged it himself. But he, he just made such a... a, a uh, I mean, he wouldn't come back to work. He... he he kept insisting on, on changing his statements, and, and I told him if he didn't complete his statements on it and, and get everybody's waiting on the set for him to, to, to get the work. And he, he just was totally uncooperative, and I said, well, I have no choice but to replace you. So if you'll notice in Pedro Glory that there's no coverage at all of the three people that were accused of, of cowardice, you know, we do not see them in the battle scene. Because the the, the the truth of the matter is, you can't show two without the third one, and and Kim was is gone at that point. We had to double him in maybe one scene uh, with the with the priest before the execution. His back is turned to the camera, so you don't know the difference. But fortunately, we had we had uh, shot over the execution stuff, uh, and and the battle scene was the last thing that we did on the schedule. So. Tim was already gone, so we, we couldn't cover Ralph Meeker and Joe Tatel, who were the other two that were that were chose, chosen for, for Calidus, uh without Tim. So we just didn't include anybody in the battle scene. But everything else was was, was perfect as far as all the actors were concerned. But, but uh, and then you might ask me, well, then why did you hire Tim again for, for fastballing? And the reason is he's so goddamn good. <laughs> That you can forgive him for everything because you want him and you you want you know like he's 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 a one and only 
and you, you just know better better for, for, for certain things you want to do. And I also felt sorry for him and felt that, that everybody deserves another chance. And, and he was asking me, please, you know, put him in the picture. And, and I figured, well, if he behaves himself, uh, I'll get through it okay. It still was a little bit of a, of, of a go. I mean, he, uh, the first the first thing I was uh, uh, shooting with him was he's supposed to have fallen from the tier and lying dead on the, on the, on the ground floor. He wasn't lying still. And, you know, it's pretty tough to... to to tell the audience that this person is dead if they're moving, you know. So I said, Tim, you're not going to start all over again. I am giving me trouble. I said, because we haven't started shooting yet, and you, and you can be replaced in like in 10 seconds. So, so either lie still or get out. And, and he was a good boy from that point on. But, man, he's tough. He was tough. And may rest in peace. He, 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 when you see him on the screen, I mean, he is one of a kind. And that's, a, that's the reason that, that I put him in, in best walking, anyway. Had he changed much over the 20 years between working with him on uh, Pass the Glory and working with him on Fast Walking? No. He's exactly the same. <laughs> <laughs> same guy, the same, same uh, scene stealer, you know, impossible to match on coverage. You know, if you shoot it you know, one angle, he's got his legs crossed, and you're shooting the same scene over again from a different angle, different image size if you want, and then your legs aren't crossed, and... The script supervisor has to be uh, absolutely copious notes on everything because he's not disciplined, you know. I mean, a good actor knows how to do everything exactly the same way because the coverage has to be cuttable. You have to be able to edit it so there's no jumps cut or, or people are <clears throat> one scene of legs, of course, and the next, you know, the next instant you see them, it's uncaused and, or, you know, the hand movements or they're picking their nose or something. It's, it's, you know, he, he just, was totally undisciplined, but if you can make it work, you know, it's worth it with him because he is so, so an unusual character. So when it comes to some call it loving, that was your script and, uh, you know, you produced it, you directed it. Must have been, uh, project must have been pretty close to you. Well, it wasn't autobiographical if that's what you're getting at. No, no, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> Unless there's something you're not telling me, but. <laughs> no, I, I, you forgot to say I also wrote it. Which, which uh, it was based on a John Condy short story, which was only 16 pages. So uh, I just took the germ of the idea, which I thought was a really a terrific idea, to say something that I wanted to say, and, and that basically is a different approach than John Condy took. You know, he, he wrote a story about an old man who's sort of late in life and doesn't have many years left, and he's, he's visiting America from England. He's coming from England. He's traveling around America, and his car breaks down in, in some real rural area like Arkansas. And while waiting for a train out of there, he, he attends a carnival and finds a Sleeping Beauty act in the carnival and gets this notion that if he could wake this Sleeping Beauty up, I mean, maybe the last few years of his life could really be incredibly uh, fun and, and exciting. And so he, he finds out uh, that, 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 that he can buy the act, and he buys it, brings it back to England, and, and goes through a lot of money, sells off a lot of estate for, for, the, for the doctors and, and, and the kind of specialists he needs to try to wake her up, and he finally comes across with some kind of a formula that, that, that wakes her up. And what Tanya did it was that he wakes this girl up and finds out that she shatters all his dreams because she's like the worst person you could possibly have awakened. She, you know, she says, why did you take me out of show business? And she is just impossible to, to deal with. And 
And then she starts taking walks in the afternoon, and you know this is when she comes back for the walks, but she's really happy and, and feeling very content, and, and he decides to follow her one day and finds out that she is, is having an affair with the neighbor next door on these walks that she's taking, and so they have such a row about it at night that he decides to, to put her back to sleep, and, and winds up doing the act himself at the carnival. I think, well, gee, this is a terrific idea, but... I don't want to blame it on the girl. I, I feel that in my lifetime, I've had, you know, multiple relationships. And at one point, I had to say to myself, could they all be wrong? Could they all, you know, there must be something in myself that mitigates the relationship, that, that makes it not work. The problem probably lies within me. Why don't you tell the story that way, that, that somebody who is engaging in, in, in kind of, 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 of sex fantasies and things that, that he's not terribly proud of, that he would like to get back to having a, a romantic, normal relationship that, you know, like sort of start all over again. And when he comes across the Sleeping Beauty, that's what his plan is, is that, he, that, that if he could wake this girl up, that he could really have a very normal, loving, hand-holding, walking in the sunset kind of a, of a real romance not these, these these kind of kinky sex things that that, that, that uh, seems to be what's guiding his whole life. And so he wakes her up and, and makes this mistake of bringing her back to, to the uh, to the house where all of this is taking place that he's not very uh, happy with. And she becomes contaminated and, and misunderstands and thinks that that's what makes him happy. And so she becomes a party to it. And it, it reaches a point where he's right back where he started. And so she's got himself more unhappiness with this. You better put her back to sleep and, and, and maybe some later day he could start over again. But winds up back in the carnival doing the act himself. So I mean, that was the difference that that, that, that that short story gave me the opportunity to say a few things about broken relationships and, and, and one thing I learned, you never want to tell too much what something's about because, uh, you know, like T.S. Eliot said, if I could say it any other way, I would have. It, it's, you know, it's a very personal film, you know, which is expresses, you know, how I feel about about relationships and things. So I, I, I don't want to hit it on the nose and you, you can't have, you know, expositional dialogue that actually shows what the thing is about. You have to try to do it in a way that, that it's not blatant and it's not, you know, that people get it. Or, or they may have their own interpretations and you don't want to deprive them of that. So you just do the picture and let people think what they think. And, uh, and in, in most cases, people, I mean, it is, it is a, a picture that really divides people. I mean, in some, in some areas, people really have, they, they don't get it at all and think the picture's a total waste of time. Other people think it's, it, it's, it's very rewarding to see a picture like this made because nobody ever does these kind of movies. So I've had my ups and downs with the picture, needless to say. Um, in France, it was like a masterpiece, and in New York, it was like a disaster. But, but that's when you make these kind of movies, you have to expect that. You're making it for a special audience. You just hope the audience is, is, is more than less. How did you come to Zalman King for your lead character in this one? Well, I had seen him in a, in, a, in a television show called Young Lawyers, and I always was impressed with, with him. And I thought, you know, I want somebody who's, who's, who's not like a standard, uh, typical Hollywood, Hollywood handsome boy and so forth. I want somebody who's interesting looking and, and that people would think, 
you know, more believable. He'd be more believable in this kind of a story. Not that that uh, Adonis's or or you know, really, you know, the typical romantic male lead can't have fantasies and 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 have involvement in you know in, in sexual fantasies and things. But I, I think it just plays better to have a more a more realistic person that doesn't look like a movie star. And and I thought that Zalman not only seemed to be a good actor. But he was, he had the perfect uh, kind of persona for for the for the part I had the character I had in mind. The film was made in the early seventies, and for me, that kind of seems to have been really the peak of sexual liberation. Did that kind of play a part in helping to um, kind of put the the film in a particular era for you? I guess maybe that's kind of a disorder in your thinking. But, I mean, I wasn't conscious of it. I mean, to me, it was just a story that interested me, and, and a vehicle by which I could I could I could say something about you know that a person who who is not being able to to have a normal relationship and and tries to have one and, and makes a mistake and so forth. I know the sixties and the seventies were all into that burden of love and, and freedom and, and, and making singles and, and all that, but. You know, my hair was a little longer than I mean, whatever little I had left. You know, I was wearing jeans, and, and but I never smoked any grass, and I never took any drugs, and, and you know, I figured that I'm going to be the same. I don't care about 60s, 70s. And, you know, I feel I'm the same now as I was then. Anyway, let's go, let's go on to the next one. <laughs> Well, you were talking about jazz, and jazz plays such an important role in Some Call It Loving. Can you tell me a little bit more about the score? Can you tell me about Richard Hazard? Dick Hazard came about because I, I heard a Barbara Streisand record, uh, and, I, and, and, and the voicing of the strings, and, you know, the, the, the orchestration behind her sounded so good. I said, Jesus, you know, that guy, if he could score movies, I have to check him out. Just, uh, just like I did with Nelson Riddle when, when I got him to do Lolita. I you know I heard his his album on, on the uh, the Lee Small Hours Sinatra album and you know on the bridges uh, that's gone the, the string the voicing on the strings was so beautiful I thought that I had to have that so so Dick Hazard he used to do a lot of, of orchestrations and things for for Lalo Shipman but I couldn't afford Lalo Shipman but Dick Hazard turned out to be just terrific I mean he, he I checked him out and he he was he was capable of scoring a movie and and uh, I told him that. Uh, if he, if he would consider doing this, it'd be great. Before this came along, you know, I actually, I, I called David Goosen uh, before I called Dick Hazard, because I didn't know about Dick Hazard yet. And I called David and, and, and I asked him, if, uh, would he be available? And, and he was too expensive, actually. I couldn't afford him. So I went back to the research and everything. That's when I came up with Dick Hazard. But when we when we did the jazz scores, if you can believe this, David Goosen was playing the piano for scale. On, on the uh, on the on our pre-recorded uh, jazz, so it just shows you what you know what the what the business is like. Is that jazz musicians who are such fine musicians, they've been trained at conservatories and, and same places like Berklee School of Music in Boston or, or Juilliard or, or the Eastman School in Rochester, and and they, they you know they they're lucky they can find work you know playing in, in nightclubs to scale. Whereas the, the people who are not trained, who are, who are nowhere near musicians or jazz musicians are, are making millions. You know, I suppose it's supply and demand. You know, so jazz is just too sophisticated for, for people because they just don't get it. Now, the reason that I use Zalman as a, as a jazz musician 
sound is that, that, that jazz basically is improvisations on on themes, variations on themes. You know, the, in most jazz presentations, the, the the melodic line is presented first. You know, that in other words, playing it straight. But then the chords that support the the melodic line, the, the harmonics, remain the same as the instrumentalist then starts to do variations. But he has to do them that 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 they are in the same key and you know, they fit the chords that are being played behind it. Uh, Luzio, or, or do you have any idea what I'm talking about? Oh yeah, yeah. I used to be a musician as well. Oh great. So so you understand about chord changes and, and all of that. Yeah, and, and you know that the melody that those chord changes support the, the melodic line. But when when you when you depart from the melodic line, the chord changes have to remain the same. And so it's the, the ability of the of the instrumentalist to be able to play all these variations, which you know, as he takes his chords, I figured that that my character that Zalman is playing is, is is doing variations on on what what you know he's varying from the melodic line of normal sex. And and he's doing his, his variation. So I figured, let's make him a jazz musician. And Zalman had, had you know, played or tried to play the saxophone as a young person. So he was able to give me, you know, the the, the breathing synchronization that was so necessary to the playback. If you'll notice, if you see this, uh, see, uh, some call it loving, it's incredible how, how he, he breathes exactly when the original player who played on the, on the pre-recordings did the reading. Uh, so it makes it really seem like he's playing. And I was so proud of that. Not that it means a damn thing for anybody uh, seeing the picture. It just goes right by. But for me, I mean, that, that to me is, 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 is an accomplishment is, is having a scene play, you know, having the scene work. Uh, so I really got such a kick out of that. But when you think about uh, who was playing on, that, on those background things, the best in the world, you know, you have Ray Brown playing bass and you had one of the he can always playing trumpet and, and he's just, uh, the, the trombone players one of the greatest they always his name always escapes me but, but he's, he's he's terrific and Dave Wilson was playing piano and then there was the the uh, the drummer um, what was his name uh, Stan Lindsay now Stan Lindsay I remember as a kid was was you know, one of the like deep opera drummers who played big bands and small groups and he told me that. That he had to, that he was also a photographer now, shooting weddings and bar and things like that. And you know, it just breaks my heart when you think of a guy that that is such an accomplished drummer, and, and you really have to, you know, the income you make from 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 the jazz is is not sufficient really that you have to go out and, and have fun, you know, a second occupation. So, who was easier to work with, Richard Pryor or Tim Carey? You got you got a good. Uh, Coin cost there. That's uh, I'd say. I'd say about the thing. You know, different problems, but 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 I mean, but problems. You know, like like Richard was was uh, doing that period. He was heavy into drugs, so you, you just don't know what you're going to get in the, in the afternoon. You know, I had the same thing with with Tim McIntyre on Fast Walking. It's just you just have to. You just have to. Be really careful when you hire actors to make sure that they don't get into any of these drugs and stuff. Because with Richard, it didn't, it didn't become a problem because he he's really all uh, doing doing uh, what's the word you know uh, ad libbing. 
that's where he's he's so good at that. So you know, it just doesn't sound like he like he's he's doing uh, variations. But so the fact that he may not he be he might be high while he's working, it doesn't really damage the the performance. But when somebody has to know precise lines, then it becomes a problem. You know, when when you're doing improvs, you have to be careful that that the the actor knows exactly what the scene is about. So with improvs. Not uh, depart from what what you're trying to say in the scene. So in those cases, uh, the, the the dialogue should be precise. It's, it's important, particularly if there's any exposition, if there's any information that has to be dealt out to the audience. But where in, in, in Richie's case, improv uh, was beneficial because that's the one he got his best. So uh, so it, it, it didn't really. I mean, so I would have to say that Tim Kelly was he <laughs> wins. I would say Richard's whole performance feels like a, a jazz riff sometimes. Yeah, well, it is. It is. Yeah. You don't know it's coming. But uh, you always have the right to do it over if you didn't like what you got. But in most cases, I mean, you know, he was a stand up comedian and, and uh, he, he, and he's a good actor, actually. You know, you saw him in other, other things, Lady Scenes of Blues, and he was in. Gene Wilder in a couple of pictures, and, and uh, he was in some kind of a babysitter movie or something. I forget what it was. He, he uh, he's a good actor, and um, uh, he, he's a great talent. He was a great talent. It's unfortunate that he was so into drugs and stuff. When did you first meet up with James Elroy? I, I uh, came across his book called Blood on the Moon. It was a, part of the trilogy. With the, uh, there were three books with the same uh, detective. Um, uh, Lloyd Hopkins is the character there, and I, the the, the uh, blood on the moon was. I came across the book, and and, and I felt this could make a, a good movie, which it turned out to be cop. So uh, I, I contacted uh, the agent, and the agent uh, told me that that uh, Elmer was going to be on the West Coast, so he don't need whatever, and, and I thought we should get together and talk about it. Because I like to discuss what they know, uh, you know, how I plan on doing the adaptation. And so we met, you know, for dinner. And um, he was, a, you know, a character, like, like a very unusual character. He, very likable as far as I was concerned. But, but, you know, like he was just building down these, these espressos. You know how strong they are? And like these double, triple espressos one after another. I think they're so wired. It, it was, uh, but... It was, it was, he was fun to talk to and fun to, 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 to you know, exchange ideas with and, and, to, and to hear, you know, he tell you his life story and, and his background and really fun stuff. And so we became real good friends and, and you know, spent time going out to dinner and hanging out. And it all came about because I had come across his book and wanted to do it as a movie. I acquired the film right and then I wrote the script and, and, uh, and he uh, gave it his blessings and, and made the movie. Um, and so I haven't seen him lately, but, but, uh, I also acquired the, uh, the Black Dahlia, uh, and did it and did the first, uh, screenplay on that, uh, which is totally, uh, to James Elroy's and my disappointment was totally redone, uh, when they did the movie. But, you know, we're and I stay friends. I haven't seen him for a while, but, uh, he's around. He's still knocking out those novels. What have you been up to lately? Uh, lately, I'm uh, uh, about to embark on a terrific project named Alex. Um, 
And so, uh, with no announcements have been made about that, except that I acquired the film rights to this terrific French uh, novel, part of the trilogy. Actually, it's the four books, uh, written by Pierre Lemaitre, who has won the highest literary prize in, in Europe for, not for Alex, but for, for uh, another book that he's written in the last few years. He's just so terrific. And, uh, and he's won the Dagger Award for Alex and, and for one of the other books called Carmel in the trilogy. In the, I don't know what you call it when there's four books called Quadrology. <laughs> you know, I wrote, I wrote a screenplay on it, and, and uh, we're going to get it made. I'm looking forward to it. But no announcements have been made about it, so I don't know. Uh, I don't want to... But, but, but it has been on the internet that I acquired the film on, so, so it's not, I'm not getting a game away at this point. Good. Yeah, I don't. I don't want to uh, let the cat out of the bag too early or anything. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, it's just concerned the people I'm working with and everything. We're we're all looking forward to making a big announcement. You know, when when all the details are on the on the, on the production. But it has been uh, when I first acquired it. It went out on the internet anyway. So it's uh, so nothing changed. I still acquired it and I ran the screen and wrote the screenplay. Okay. So that's what I'm up to. It. That's what I'm excited about. And that's. What I intend to do. Hey, thank you again for all your time. This has been really wonderful talking to you. Oh, I'm glad I could be of help. But, you know, it's, it's uh, always fun talking about things, especially if, if, if people aren't criticizing your work. <laughs> 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 it's not so much fun. It's not so much fun when, when people say, what the hell is that all about? You know, <laughs> but if you make pictures like some poet loving, you're going to get that. And, and uh, I got plenty of it, uh, but it's, anyway, I enjoy talking about this stuff, and, and I'm glad you called, and, and I hope I've been helpful. We're back and we were talking about Some Call It Loving. So while we were uh, looking at uh, a movie that also went by the title Sleeping Beauty, I I tracked down a couple other Sleeping Beauty films. It always cracks me up when there are multiple films coming out maybe within a year or year and a half of each other that seem to share titles or, or stories. And in my mind, I just got all of these movies mixed up and it was just kind of crazy. There was uh, house of sleeping beauties in 2006. There was the sleeping beauty in what? 2011. And then there is a French v- version of sleeping beauty in 2010 or something. And it just felt like all of a sudden I was like seeing all of these. And I know 2006, 2011, there's five years in between there, but it just seemed like I was seeing sleeping beauty type stuff going on all over the place. And then you add Maleficent to the mix and it's just a sleeping beauty party going on over here. So I went out and I tracked down house of sleeping beauties and the sleeping beauty. Those were interesting. I can't say they were good. Uh, at all. Uh, actually, House of Sleeping Beauties, it's a German film. I think that's the one from 2006. And I have to say, um, I ended up turning it off after about a half an hour or so. You made it quite a while. Well, first off, I watched The Sleeping Beauty first. And that one, 
I will have to say it was interesting, though I'm not sure if I entirely enjoyed it or enjoyed how it ended. But um, it's got the woman that played Baby Doll from Sucker Punch as one of the big... <laughs> <laughs> the big selling points and uh yeah she's she's topless a lot i don't care whatever i can i can see that whenever i want but um <laughs> wow <laughs> up or what no i mean you know you can go to motherless.com or whatever you want to so you write you know, por- yeah porn is porn right i said you good porn or no i sent you bad porn i'm sorry bad porn yeah but, but uh, yeah, it's all from her point of view, and she is the one that becomes the Sleeping Beauty. She goes in every few nights to this place, and they drug her and basically take away her power. She's just this sleeping girl on this bed, and all these men come in, and allegedly they don't have sex with her. They just kind of play around with her a little bit and end up sleeping next to her. I don't know how much I buy that, but she's making a lot of money out of it, so maybe she's got some power. Uh, Yeah, whatever. It was produced by Jane Campion, and it kind of feels like a Campion film to me. So then when I watched House of Sleeping Beauties, that was basically from the old one of the sad old men who comes in and sees one of these sleeping beauties point of view and it's this old dude who isn't very happy and just talks to himself the whole time i'm just like this is how you solve the inner monologue thing huh you just have him talking to himself all the time (laughs) needless to say i wasn't that impressed i haven't seen a lot of these uh these newer Sleeping Beauty films, admittedly. I've seen some clips and trailers, though, to prep at least a little bit for, for this episode. And one thing I noticed, and that makes all of this sort of different. I mean, obviously, Maleficent isn't overtly sexual, but. Um, oh, yeah, it is. Yeah, it Melissa, is. The Angelina Jolie? It's a rape revenge film. Oh, okay. I have heard that. I haven't seen it, uh, admittedly. I haven't seen that one either. <laughs> but, um, it's kind of disturbing if you really peel the onion a little bit. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But, Very disturbing. Okay, we'll strike that. <laughs> strike what I just said. But I mean, one thing that's interesting is that I never, like I was saying earlier, with some call it loving, in my head, I always sort of divorced it from any other Sleeping Beauty related thing. I mean, I kind of thought to myself, well, why is that? Because, I mean, there's sexual elements there, and there's power play there. And obviously, it sounds like there's one in Maleficent and all of these others. And even like in the Anne Rice. Um, Sleeping Beauty trilogy, you know, that she wrote under the name, I think, A.N. Rockwellar. I My French is usually better than that, but not when it comes to Americans using pseudonyms. I didn't sound French at all. My French is good unless it's like Anne Rice using uh, pseudonyms for erotica, apparently. But, um, but anyway, I know that that whole trilogy is very, obviously, very sexual and heavy on S&M. And... So I don't know, with some call it loving, it's like the sexuality, to me, just felt like another mask. I mean, it's an element, but I never felt like it was like the main thing. Like there's so much more, it's more, almost every game is almost more in the head. And the sex is just sort of one tool to do that, but it's not the only tool. And it's not even always necessarily the main tool, you know, if you think about the big scheme of things. It's a a constant element, but I don't think it's always the main element, where it seems like other Sleeping Beauty films, from what I can tell at least, uh, they're a little more overt, let's say, on the the sex end. And why not? Yeah, why not? I would agree with you. I I really believe Some Call Loving is a lot more to do with love and mind games and and kind of like going down to the core of what it ends up being in most relationships as opposed to just sex 
And that Sleeping Beauty one that you were talking about, Mike, the 2011 one with Emily Browning, I actually liked the idea of it. It was just kind of slow. I, I liked I, I think it was very Freudian in a way. I mean, it was very psychological, it felt. But uh, the way it ended, it was a really jacked up ending, very disturbing. And I recommend watching it, but I mean, just don't expect a whole lot to happen. I'm glad I wasn't the only one that was just like, what's up with that ending? Yeah, it was a little disturbing. A lot of screaming. The one film that one critic pointed out that was kind of similar to Some Call It Loving, and I was really glad that they did, I had never seen it before, was a film called Honeycomb by uh, Carlos Sara. That one's from 69, uh, Spanish language film. And it's this uh, man and woman, and they move into this new house, and they are, I can't remember if it's a new house or not, but the, the she is getting, going on this kind of, almost emotional journey with some of the old furniture that she had from when she was a kid and basically reliving all of this stuff through fantasy, but she can't necessarily remember that she is in these fantasies and stuff and making her husband this active participant. It was very, very trippy uh, and really fascinating that to me moved the fastest out of all of these other ones. And it, kept my interest the most. So yeah, I would say that that would be a really good double feature with some call it loving. It, it, uh, it feels like these two things are playing with fantasy, a little bit with sexuality and kind of living at their own pace. And uh, I, I would definitely recommend those two together. What was honeycomb very, was it overtly sexual or was it layered kind of like this was? It was pretty layered. I mean, it seems to get more as you go along, but uh, I mean, it wasn't just sexploitation or anything. Which is like all we have now. Now, if they have sex in a movie, it has to be whips and chains, and otherwise, it doesn't count. I wish they can't do. Te- <laughs> uh, they can't do. Uh, they can't do it the same way. They can't do soft lights, and they can't do alluding to it. They have to actually spell it all out. I was like, what films are? <laughs> am I missing out on something? What? I know. The- I <laughs> The popular sex ones are like Fifty Shades of Grey and that whole series. Like whenever they have, it just seems like it's a, a secretary. It seems like they have to push it, keep pushing, 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 as opposed to just very, very subtle, very, very textured, very layered, very let it play out, etc. To me, it feels like nowadays everything has to be right there on the screen. Nothing's left to the imagination, I guess. I have to just invoke a, a friend of mine's. He has the best quote ever about Fifty Shades of Grey. He just calls it Fifty Shades of Beige. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I just had to say that it's yeah. But no, I see, I see what you're saying. I see what you're saying, Aaron. <laughs> it's an awful movie. I, I want oh god, yeah. promoting it by any means. Please avoid it by all costs. And the book is worse. Yeah, I talked a lot about that when uh, we did the uh, secretary episode, and oh my god, yeah, it. It would take a lot to get worse than that one. Well, they're going to do a second one, so it, great. I'm sure they will. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> More bad acting. Uh, are you surprised that they don't use like the actual Brothers Grimm fairy tale allusions a little bit more um, in any of these Sleeping Beauties? I mean, really, they just use the sleeping part. It feels, and and then everything else is they kind of just eh, we don't need any of that. There, there's no. The ki- other than other than this, where the kiss is going to wake him up, but the other movies that you were talking about, really none of them have a strong connection to the fairy tale. No, no, they they definitely don't. And I've always found, I mean, 
the original fairy tale, and I can't really even say original fairy tale because it's like who necessarily wrote this first? You know, is it uh, the Charles Perrault or is it uh, you know the Brothers Grimm or who can really lay claim of ownership? But I will say that when it came to the Disney movie, that for a lot of years, uh, even before Maleficent came out as a standalone film that I was very much on Maleficent's side. I mean, this whole idea of you have a party, you invite everybody except for one person, I'm going to be pissed too. And so I kind of thought that the parents deserved what Maleficent did to them. It was kind of a shame that she cursed their child, but they deserve to be punished for, you know, if you have a party and you don't invite somebody, expect the worst, man. I'll come to your house. I'll, I'll, I'll curse put a curse on all your sleeping yeah on wow. all your, your spinning wheels yeah somebody's got issues man. oh yeah yeah there's to, to self make sure to invite <laughs> mike to any upcoming <laughs> social engagements <laughs> yeah when you have that big double feature you know sweet <laughs> every, every facebook event i send out from now on is gonna have your name whether you can come or not but the other thing that i found interesting though too yeah yeah they definitely they, they stop at the idea of a woman asleep and this kiss possibly waking them up kind of thing, or just a woman asleep. But I never knew that there was a part two to the Sleeping Beauty story. The ogre thing? The- oh my God, I had no idea. That's sick. Did you know this one, Heather? About how it goes from there? Uh, you know, actually, I do not. Oh, please, Mike. Uh, <laughs> tell tell okay. her about the mom wanting to eat kids. So yeah, the the... The prince who ends up kissing Sleeping Beauty and waking her up, his uh, mother is an ogre or was from an ogre lineage, I should say. <laughs> and when the prince, uh, when time, time comes for him to be king, the mother wants the children, wants to eat the children and then the wife. The cook ends up like serving her other things. You know, it's kind of very much like you know the the huntsman bringing back the the wrong heart to the evil queen in Snow White. So rather than it being like this, you know, sheep's heart or whatever, the cook is cooking up like lamb and goat and all this stuff and serving it to the queen, and she thinks that she's basically eating her son's children. Fucked up, man. <laughs> Absolutely. So. I think that needs to be read. We'll we'll all sit around a campfire after my double feature night, and we're going to read this story out loud and roast some s'mores. It's disturbing. That first half of that fairy tale, is it sounds like a normal fairy tale, right? And you read the second half, and it's like, when, when did this happen? When did it go just batshit crazy? Let me read the last two lines of the Wikipedia thing here, talking about the, the end of the second half here. However, the Queen Mother soon discovers the cook's trick and... She prepares a tub in the courtyard filled with vipers and other noxious creatures. The king returns in the nick of time, and the ogress, her true nature having been exposed, throws herself into the tub and is fully consumed. The king, young queen, and children then live happily ever after. I love it. It's wow. so wrong in so many ways. And I think one of the sauces in there is named Sauce Robert. If, if I yes. So I don't, I don't know correct. if that's a nod. Like, maybe that's where they got Robert Troy. I don't know. Oh, interesting. <laughs> Very thick brown mustard sauce. <laughs> because that's what babies taste better with, is brown mustard mm-hmm. sauce, apparently. Ooh. Oh, yeah. A little demi-glass of... Uh, <laughs> yeah. mm. I... I love it that we we have come to demigloss on babies. 
Yes. <laughs> we didn't swear every good podcast ends up. <laughs> actually, uh, one more thing about the movie that I found really striking, actually, because uh, I'm talking about the visuals, is this is such a visually sumptuous movie in a lot of ways. And I think that for me, that was a combination. I thought the cinematography by Mario Torsi. Or Tassi, Mario Tassi, who did uh, later on lensed Carrie, as well as Buster and Billy. I thought the cinematography was great. And I also loved the set design of the the quote-unquote dream castle of this chateau. Because part of it looked like a very fancy, respectable, elegant place. The other part of it looked surreal, like a playhouse. Or like, oh, you know, almost like, the not like a carny carnival, but almost like a fun... I don't know. There was like a, just the set design of it. I just thought it was impeccable. It reminded me a lot of um, there's a Wisconsin uh, attraction called House on the Rocks. And it's like a big fancy house that has like a literal merry-go-round in it. And it's really just a crazy surreal place. And yeah, there are elements. It's, it's a very cool place. Yeah. I can, I can I've see. never heard of this place before. I've never heard of House on the Rock? No. Oh, it's fantastic. I mean, it's just a house, but it's a really cool house that you want to live in for like a week. Yeah, I've never, I've never sadly gotten to visit, but some friends of mine in college, they went and they brought back photos and they even bought like in the gift shop. This tells you how long ago. <laughs> this is like early 2000s. I guess they still made cassettes of like the music played in there. And they brought back a cassette, and they were playing me the music. And I was like, this place sounds amazing. Like, I, it always just captivated me. And so when I saw some Call It Loving last year, like, I think particularly the room where Jennifer's sleeping, I was like, God, this looks like something I would picture being in House on the Rock. Like, it just, there's a, the, the design that went into that, which um, I'm trying to remember who it was that told me. But when I, when I wrote the article, um, uh, somebody t- commented to me that they knew Zalman King, and he actually had a prop from this film in his house in the nineties. Well, I'm sure it's a big film for him. I mean, obviously it it became what his whole career was. I mean, this kind of film, just a little bit more graphic, but I mean, this is really what he made his, his market as a director with this kind of film. Right. I mean, eventually it's such a weird, like it's definitely the artiest thing he ever did as an actor. I mean, other than maybe, I mean, maybe one could argue for blue sunshine. I mean, uh, I I do like some of Zalman's other acting works, like, uh, was it trip with the teacher, but that's definitely more of the nastier side of exploitation film. And I say that with complete love and reverence, of course, but, um, but I, I don't know, seeing this film, I wish he, I actually wish he could have worked with somebody like Radley Metzger. I think he would have fit very well in the Metzger universe. Nobody else thinks she looks like David Duchovny and acts kind of like David Duchovny. <laughs> Not even a little bit. I, was- I can kind of see that, you know. I mean, David Duchovny, just talking about David Duchovny's features real quickly, and that, you know, there is some similarity. David Duchovny once talked about how if he was to play uh, the Dark Knight in a film, that they would have to call him Batman Ashevitz. And I can kind of see, like, <laughs> Zalman King has a very presentable nose and i can see Duchovny kind of having that same nose i'm telling you if you go find the biggest fro you can find and throw it on a picture of Duchovny, it looks very similar to zalman king in this movie and, and, he, right. and he acts the same like very deadpan very stoic very just dead-faced i'm just glad that he didn't have a voiceover i'm glad that they kept the voiceover to scarlet at the beginning and they didn't give robert a voiceover why, why do you I, like that so much? Well, because when I think of David Duchovny and like Red Shoe Diaries, I think voiceover. <laughs> Let's go ahead. We're going to take a break and play a preview for next week's show. 
Dobrou noc má tmavou lásko, dobrou noc a sladce spí, až se probudíš má lásko, nevyzrát That's right. We'll be back next week with a look at Valerie and her week of wonders as this kind of fairy tale themed month continues. Before we go, I want to thank this week's guest co-host, Heather and Aaron. Heather, what is new in your world? Well, of course, I've been uh, writing for my own site, Mondo Heather, as well as uh, I have two tribute pieces, uh, one to Lemmy and one to David Boy, as well as an interview with um, legendary uh, goth dark wave musician, excuse me, Andy Sex Gang, uh, and the new issue of Art Decades, uh, which is their David Boy tribute issue, and you can find that on artdecades.com, as well as I was actually interviewed on Supporting Characters, which is a new podcast about uh, my career in writing, and it's hosted by Bill Ackerman, and you can find it on the Now Playing Network. That whole podcast is about your career in writing? All of it. I, Bill is insane. Wow. I don't know why he did seven... Uh, <laughs> No, no. There's one. There's one episode. But I highly encourage everybody to check out all of them uh, if you're into film. If you're into film writing, and uh, which I'm assuming any most people listening to this to this podcast should be. I hope so. Did I hear a rumor that you were doing some sort of uh, activity book for what was that like Satanists or something? What uh, is that? <laughs> not quite. Um, well, a few mu- a few months ago, uh, I was actually invited to participate and offer a film themed crossword puzzle for an, an occult activity book. 
Oh, okay. Sorry, I'm mixing up a cult with Satanism. No, no, no. Uh, that's understandable. Uh, Geraldo did it all the time in the 80s, but you were far, huh. you were far better than Geraldo. So, uh, <laughs> but, uh, and uh, it sold out. It actually did uh, – just sold out. It's out of print already, and they're going to be doing a follow-up. And I don't want to say too much about it, but perhaps more will be revealed in a future Projection Booth episode. So how about you, Aaron? What are you up to? Uh, well, each week, um, I'm one of the hosts of The Hollywood Outsider, which is kind of a more jovial take on news, reviews, and topics in film and television. Uh, every other week, I host a, a podcast called Remake This Movie Right, where we take films that are getting a remake and craft our own version. It's kind of like the fan version, if you will. And then cap it off with a with a fake movie trailer. And just recently, we had the writer of Tremors, S.S. Wilson, came on and helped us remake Joe Dante's uh, The Howling, which was was very cool to have a writer of one movie come on and remake a, a movie that he won that he chose, and uh, with a director that he'd actually worked with before. So that that was pretty cool. And I also co-host the Blacklist Exposed. It's kind of like something as I do as a favor to a friend. And uh, we, if you're a fan of that show, and we just interviewed John Bokenkamp, who's the creator of it on the last season. So definitely a lot of cool stuff, a lot of podcasts, podcasting a lot, apparently. Now the blacklist is at the, uh, the TV show, yep, the NBC TV show. Okay. All right. So you talk a lot about the main character's hair, I imagine. <laughs> or lack thereof. Yes. Yeah. 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 People seem fascinated by her hair and her wig and stuff. Oh my God. It's, it's really in a, an obscene amount of time is spent on that hair. Yeah. I don't understand why. Jane Spader's phenomenal, but all anybody cares about is that hair. I can't stand her husband. I just want him gone. Same here. And it turns out he's going to be in a spinoff. So oh, you might get God. your wish. You might get your wish. I'm, I, just, I don't want them together. I'm fine if he's on the show as long as they're not together. I just don't want him on there anymore. I want more Alan Alda, but I know I won't get that. <laughs> Spoiler alert. Oh, my bad. <laughs> uh, and you can find all that stuff thehollywoodoutsider.com you can find everything there thehollywoodoutsider.com I forgot I will be sure to link over to that as well as to Mondo Heather's many many projects yeah she's busy yeah she is very very busy you, I think she hung up. No, no, I'm still. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm, so, I'm so busy. I had to go. That's, yes, no sleep. Sleep. Yeah, sleep is for the week. Apparently, so. <laughs> I hear you. I'm putting the finishing touches on the latest episode right after we get done talking here. So let me hurry up and wrap this up here. Thank you again, Heather and Aaron, for coming on the show, and thanks to everybody for listening. If you want to find out more about today's film, our guests or guest co-hosts, be sure to head on over to the website projection-booth.com. There you can also find a link over to our iTunes page where you can rate and review the show. Every review definitely helps the Projection Booth take over the world. A candy-colored clown they call the Sandman Tiptoes to my room every night Just to sprinkle stardust and to whisper Go to sleep, everything is all right I close my eyes Then I drift away
Enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.